Um, so I was asked to give this keynote in um, for a, a statewide health organization. I had all the data. I had all the science. I had all the, you know, all the things that I knew from my repertoire of working in higher education and corporate America. I don't know, a minute and a half before I walked on stage and did a little glance of the audience. I was... I looked at the audience and thought, there's no way this crowd of, you know, people who have maybe lived double of the amount of time I have on this planet are going to look at me and take me seriously if I just give them numbers and data. Welcome to the Real Leadership Podcast. My name is Chris Obst. I've spent the last 25 years going deep with leaders on the real challenges they face, the stuff that keeps them up at night. Are you ready for raw and honest conversations and the reality that self-leadership and personal growth are the keys to you being the leader that you were meant to be? Well, Shara, we, we finally did it. Um, <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking about this uh, for a while, a long mm-hmm. while, and we came close to doing this in person, um, but the stars weren't aligned. But um, I, I think I didn't want to wait any longer to have you on my podcast uh, you're someone that I think my listeners are going to love getting to know and you've got so much to share. Um, and we we're talking earlier about, well, how am I going to introduce you? Because you have, you have such an interesting, uh, portfolio type career and, uh, you know, educational path. And, um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself, but for my listeners, uh, share a, uh, is is a colleague and a friend uh, that I met a few years ago. And um, yeah, we just always have great conversations about leadership and growth and all those things. So welcome, Shara. Uh, nice to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What a sweet and kind, generous introduction. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me and my background. Um, I come from a behavioral studies upbringing, I guess, more or less. Um, I went off to pursue my master's in public health with an emphasis in behavioral, social, and community health, and the secondary master's in applied health science. So I've always been very passionate about marrying how we function behaviorally individually in group dynamics and how our health and well-being applies to leadership. Um, so with that, I moved on to working in higher ed um, for a number of years. I did corporate work, nonprofit, hospital settings. Um, sales, worked in kind of a a gamut of arenas before moving on to my own individual consulting and coaching. Um, I've been a health coach for over almost a decade now, um, and leadership and well-being is all part of that. And I'm currently um, obtaining my doctorate in clinical psychology. So that's also added to the repertoire of things that I work, work through and for, as well as being a yoga and meditation teacher. I've been doing that for the last uh, 15 years. So I kind of like to marry uh, all the things that I am passionate about, if you will. I'm a multi-passionate person into how I support people in my purview. Is that all? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you keep asking just, me questions. Yeah. Well, just just in just in what your where your passions lie. I mean, there's so many things. I know you and I could have a four-hour podcast here, and but you know, one of the things I realized um, when we were getting getting ready for this, and I'm trying to think of the year. Normally, when I have a guest, they say, "Well, do you remember when we met?" and and the context of that. And uh, do you remember the the context of how we met? Um, I was working for a company in Portland that was that was hiring you to come in and speak for an executive retreat. 
And for whatever reason, the um, head of people I was working closely with asked me to talk to you about getting the ball rolling with bringing you in. Um, I kind of became the liaison for all things well-being and leadership development for um, for your experience there with us. So it was really exciting um, because I had never really worked with individual consultants before um, in that in that arena. Um, so that's kind of how we got connected, um, and then you flew in to where I am, and we just kind of I think hit it off. We're talking about coffee and all <laughs> things travel and. Yeah. Is that yeah, the same question so, you have? Well, yes. And I remember it was funny because it was a, um, this organization, they, I think they met through, there was a referral from someone that, that worked in, a, in a, another organization that I had supported in the past. And so they were having me come in and, and, you know, we had a contract signed and then they canceled it. And. Oh yeah. And it was like, okay. And they said, okay, well, you know, we'll cover, you know, this was sorry. Last month. And then. Like a week later, they uncanceled it and they wanted me to come back down. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a tumultuous start because I didn't I had no experience with the organization. But what I remember is you and you were pretty young. I mean, you are young compared to me, as everybody is. But I remember your presence. It's like, wow, this young woman has there's something about her. Like you just had this kind of you were, you know, I met a lot of people that weekend or that week that I was there. It was a couple of days, but. I just remember your your presence like you were just really there and you were so interested obviously in the topic and now that I've gotten to know you I understand why um but anyway I can't remember exactly how many years ago that was maybe five five and some change actually oh, yeah okay. five, yeah mm-hmm. yeah well um so lots of lots has happened uh, in your world and in my world since then and um we had a pesky little pandemic in between and um mm-hmm. I, I guess one of the one of the places I wanted to start with, with you is that, you know, you, you and I were talking, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago about leaders and well-being and vulnerability. And there's a story you shared with me um, about you doing, you were doing a, you're, you were asked to do a keynote and mm-hmm. that was new for you, right? That was a new arena. And they wanted you to talk about resilience or being resilient as a leader. And then you made a very courageous decision I think at the last moment and it was it was you just listening like listening to your gut or your heart or your soul or something and I I I know you as someone that that leads with all those parts you're very bright educated person but I know you've learned to tap in so I'm wondering if you would share that story about that keynote and, and what you did the risk you took and what happened yeah yeah, it's so serendipitous. I think that life just brings you opportunities and how you pivot in them is such a testament to your character and and little glimmers of authenticity allow for a lot of breakthroughs in relational dynamics. And I think that that is, you know, from a, a corporate arena where I was working at the time, the same company actually that you had come to visit, um, it's hard to be vulnerable and authentic sometimes, you know, you kind of have to put on your best business clothes and step forward and, you know, be this best version of yourself all at all times. And I, you know, I come from a little bit more of a, a hard knocks upbringing. And um, so that was a learning curve for me in a lot of ways, you know, how to be, you know, how to put on this armor, if you will. Um, so I was asked to give this keynote in um for a, a statewide health organization, all cities and communities brought together. And the topic was resilience. 
and I've been studying resilience for quite some time. And now it's kind of a buzz thing to bring up, I think, because of COVID in many ways. And a lot of ways, that's a good thing, I think. In a lot of ways, it's kind of become overused, I think, culturally. But with that being said, you know, at the time, it was how to be resilient and adaptable in given experiences and bring it into a business context that we can ripple out into our communities more broadly across the whole region. And um, I had all the data, I had all the science, I had all the, you know, all the things that I knew from my repertoire of working in higher education and corporate America, I'm in America, um, that I needed to bring to the table to be considered valid. And so I had this thing prepared and was feeling really, really confident about it. And I don't know, a minute and a half before I walked on stage, I did a little glance of the audience. And in that moment, I realized that I was, to your point earlier, probably the youngest tater tot in the room. <laughs> it's not, you know, I'm not unfamiliar with that feeling. It's been kind of a lot of my experience, candidly, professionally. Um, not so much now. I'm, I'm a little older than I was then. But at the time, you know, it's it's easy to look at somebody who's really young, who's a woman, who, you know, is in business clothes and seeming like, seemingly like, you know, somehow you've made it to this pinnacle of you're giving a keynote in your life. So what do you know about resilience? And just for some context, you you were in your 20s then, right? I was in my 20s then, yeah. I'm not now, but I was then. Um, I was, I looked at the audience and thought, there's no way this crowd of, you know, people who have maybe lived double of the amount of time I have on this planet are going to look at me and take me seriously if I just give them numbers and data. So how do I relate to them in a way that will be considered authentic, authentic, excuse me, um, but also candid and real and what will land? And I had this all happening in my brain 60 seconds before I walked on stage and I walked on stage and I just said, you know, I very candidly at the gate said, you know, I have this whole big presentation here for, prepared for all of you. I have all of the facts that we need to talk about resiliency and how we can bring it into the workforce and what does it look like to bravely lead in individual um, aspects of organizations, et cetera, and taking that and applying it to your personal life. But I think it's important that you hear my story first before I even say this all to you, because how do you know what I'm saying is valid from a person to person level? And so I started to unravel my story a little bit. I told um, the audience about my upbringing. I grew up in a single family, a single parent family unit, well below the federal poverty line. Um, we grappled with homelessness. My house burned down. Um, there was a lot of addiction in my family. There still is people struggling with that in varying degrees. Um, my parents were never married, so I have a split family. I didn't meet half my family until I was 16. I have lost, I'm one of seven. I've lost two brothers already, one from a car accident, one from suicide. And my oldest brother currently has a terminal illness and I'm his legal medical guardian. So there's a lot there just in like, you know, me, you know, darting you with all these high level facts. But as somebody at the time who was in my late 20s, I look around my peer group and hadn't seen a lot of what I had been going through. And not to say that people aren't going through that. I'm absolutely certain that people are going through that, but rarely are we faced with opportunities to catapult ourselves forward beyond that. It's super easy to get caught up in the cycle of how do I support the people around me? 
How do I advocate for my own needs in this environment? How do I try to make a, you know, positive life for myself when, you know, being poor doesn't mean just like not having money. And I think that we kind of think that is the, the, the basic foundation. Yeah. Not having a financial stability lends itself to domestic violence, substance misuse, um, tumultuous relationships, trauma. There's a lot of things that people go through under the umbrella of poverty. And that's, you know, also considering that I'm talking about what it's like to be in a pretty well-established country. Yeah. You know, you look at other organ other um entities, other other countries around the world, and that that cadence or metronome of what poverty is is very different. But in the United States, anyway, where I am, you know, it's a very people who are poor are almost invisible. It's a very challenging arena to move outside of and beyond. Mm. So that being said, I didn't, you know, emphasize a lot of the poverty pieces, but I did emphasize, you know, to go through for the loss that I've gone through already in my life. I've had to be resilient. We talk about post-traumatic growth a lot um, in the, you know, therapeutic lens of some people go through intense traumas and they get caught in it. They get wrapped in it and it's hard to overcome it. It's incredibly hard to overcome incredible loss or adversity in any kind of way. Um, and some people choose to lean into resiliency skills or their brains function in a way that they can, and they start to overcome those things or they, it catapults them forward. And so I want to, sorry, sure. I, oh, go I, ahead. I, I've been I, wanna, yeah. I would love to dig further into that with you, like from a yeah. really practical point of view. Yeah. Um, and, and so but before I do, so... <laughs> So how did this keynote go? So first of all, as someone who does oh, yeah. for you for you a minute before when we're usually like just trying to calm ourselves down because we realize, holy shit, this is a bigger crowd than I was expecting. And these lights are brighter and all that. <clears throat> so, mm -hmm. I mean, unbelievably brave and smart of you to do that. So how did the keynote go? Um, it went well. So I, I was able to kind of give 15 minutes of cliff notes of my story. Um, and then I shared a lot about the data, you know, so here, here's me now being really vulnerable to a crowd of 500 strangers talking about some of the hardest things about my life that people would judge me from, from a very, you know, from a, as a kid, people could see it as an adult. You don't see that, you know, see mm -hmm. what you so I just kind of, here's my wounds. I'm going to show you them because looking at me, you don't think that I have any, and it's fair. I understand. And here's the science to back up what I'm saying, because I am that I am that story. I do believe this stuff because I've had to personally believe this stuff to overcome some of the things I've endured. So um, I think it went well. I think um, I think I had a number of people come up to me on the precipice of tears. You know, I feel like people were seen. People felt seen in some of my story. And I think, you know, we compartmentalize in our culture around how to function in your profession and how to function personally. Don't bleed those two things together because what happens at home stays at home and what happens at work stays at work. And the truth is like, that's not how humans function. So I think that a lot of people felt really seen and heard and um, I felt commended at the end of it. I felt respected. Um, it was really 
vulnerable thing for me to do in a really massive way. And um, from that, I was asked later on, you know, how did you bounce back from all the things that you went through? And I said to, I said out loud at the time, um, I, I think that life is not about bouncing back to being the version of myself I was before or bouncing back to figuring things out. Because the truth is I've just been continuously bouncing forward down this basketball court my whole life, trying to figure out how to get to the next place that feels like I'm stable and happy and healthy and well and helping people in the way that I feel called to in this on this planet, in this yeah. world. And um, at the end of it, I got a standing ovation. It was wild. And um, I, yeah, it kind of lit a fire in me a little bit about you know, you don't have to be so polished. You don't have to be so perfect. You don't have to be so put together and to be respected, but you also don't have to overshare all of your life story. And you don't have to, it doesn't have to become like this therapy session in a business context. But I think there is a piece of how do you marry who you are personally with who you are professionally and how to dynamically move through that in a way that propels you forward to overcome right. your cities. Yeah. So, yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I'm sure the, the listeners are going, well, I'm not surprised that you got a standing ovation. I mean, just listening how you articulate things now and, you know, for you to be that vulnerable and share everything you went through, you you gave many of them a gift. You gave them permission, right, mm -hmm. to, to be um, imperfect, to be raw and human and and uh and share their story. And so, and I, and I remember when you told me afterwards that you, how you felt, but like you got the bug, that feeling of, wow, you know, I, I, I moved people mm -hmm. and, and I moved a bunch of people at one time, which is a really cool feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this is what's one of the things that if someone asked me to describe you, I think about, okay, there's a woman who's been through so much, right. And just, I mean, you just rattled a few things off that any one of those things in most people's lives, would crush them for years and years and years. And so what I experienced with you is you have this really amazing capacity to you, you know, some people when bad things happen, they push it down. They never talk about it again. It, it just goes buried away. And it's like, there's this little wall built up and they just, I'm going to, I'm just going to move in this direction now. Or, and I'm not judging anyone for how they, react to horrible things <laughs> don't please don't take it this way listeners I, i'm just saying i see many people do that or they carry the bad thing that happened the tragedy the trauma around is a burden and it's like a dark cloud that follows them everywhere they go what i think you do a very inspiring job of if it's a job and what and how it inspires me and i think others is is you don't forget and you talk about it I mean, you you regularly talk about your brothers and how you miss them, and and you, but you keep moving forward, and and you you're you're building and growing and learning. So it's like, yeah, I'm I'm dealing, and it's not what was me. Yeah, I wish it didn't happen, and it happened, and I'm carrying on. So I just think I haven't met many people that do that, and I think that's part of your gift. Why you're on this planet, why you're on this path, is is to enlighten and inspire us. Um, in that direction so first of all as a as a human in the human race i want to thank you for for showing up like like you do and i know you didn't read this in a book i know this this just kind of bubbled up from you and, and your journey mm -hmm. 
So what I'd love to know, and I, I think one of the one of your audience members asked, so how did you do that? Like how like what happened? How did you learn or decide or what inspiration to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce forward. I'm not gonna look back, but I'm not gonna forget either. Well, first, I want to say thank you for all the kind uh, things you just shared with me. Thank you. I'm working on graciously receiving. So thank you. Um, I so I want to like there's this nuance here that I'm kind of thinking about as you as you ask that question. There's I wouldn't say that I don't look back, but I am I'm not interested in moving that direction. So I know that sometimes in order to process what I've gone through you have to kind of compartmentalize and people compartmentalize in different ways. I think about it like filling a storage unit. You know, I, you know, I have something that I went through and it's this certain size box and I'm going to put this in the storage unit until I'm ready to face that box when I'm unpacking later or moving in a different arena in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you let that storage unit matriculate and <laughs> build up a lot of different things over time, it becomes a lot more, to process, to unpack, and it becomes flooding. And for me, I've tried really hard to unpack the boxes when I feel like I have the space and bandwidth to do that. Mm -hmm. And that compartmentalization, some people do it and they try not to ever acknowledge the box even existed. Right. I think that's where we get in trouble with things like midlife crises. but maybe that's just my that's just my educated guess. I'm not over here pathologizing. I'm just saying that's genuinely what I see to be true for many of the people I've personally known. But with that being said, when I was younger, excuse me, when I was younger, I I found that positive reinforcement for me came from how successful I was outside of my home unit. So I went really hard into academia because it was an area which I knew I could control for myself. The rules were cut and dry. I felt like I could learn a lot and cultivate a further advancement in who I was as a person through my environment being a little bit different. Then I applied that to a professional career and choosing to constantly be in arenas that challenged my way of thinking, that challenged what I was comfortable with and pushed me to face my fears, right? I think some people get paralyzed in the fear of like not knowing what's ahead or fear of change or fear of pain or fear of discomfort or fear of, you know, you name it. There's a laundry list of fears that can really hijack our experiences. Fear of failure, fear fear of success. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think the truth is the only way to go through life is just to go through, right? Like if I were constantly afraid of getting in a car or constantly afraid of talking about suicide or constantly afraid of talking about um, terminal illness, my brothers, you know, my brothers, I think I would be in a space where, you know, the people are kind of tiptoeing around me. Mm-hmm. And does it make me feel uncomfortable to talk about it? Yes. Do some jokes people make, especially about suicide, mildly trigger me? Yes. I'm at this space now in my life where like those things, I'm aware of them. And I know that people's intent isn't to harm. And I, mm-hmm. I think about this concept between intent versus impact a lot in this dance that we're doing with ourselves and with the world around us 
in that, you know, I'm, I'm dancing with you, Chris, and you keep stepping on my toe. And enough times of us trying to figure out this dance, your intention was never to step on my toe, but like the 70th time you touched my toe, it broke my toe. Mm-hmm. And now I'm livid, right? Mm-hmm. Like people work in this situation a lot with themselves of, and the relationships of, well, that wasn't my intention. Well, the impact now is I've broken toes. So let's figure out how to fix my toe before we figure out how to make you feel better about your intention. And um, I think if we're thinking about that in this whole human experience of overcoming adversity within ourselves, my intent with putting my boxes in the back of the the storage unit is so that I don't have to feel the pain of what I'm going through or the fear of what I think might happen again. Mm -hmm. Instead, I'm learning to negotiate with myself constantly what the impact of my decisions are and where those boxes are fitting in my life at any given time. So if I don't process these things, if I don't navigate where I want to be with where I've been, then I'm going to constantly be caught in this cyclical phase of I'm here in fear and I'm not moving through it. I'm just kind of in this, this creatured element of like not wanting to be moving through change or challenge. And I've been so like, I don't know, I've been so driven to go through it so that I can get to a place where I feel comfortable in this life. But I know that I have to face the hard along the way. I have to unpack all those boxes. I have to negotiate my impact versus intent. I have to keep persevering. And that's like this adversity quotient. I think in some ways I was given this knowledge drive because it's a skill set I could, could, could control, excuse me. But it's also a way for me to continuously aim to overcome, overcome, persevere. And I think that a lot of people are like, "Ah, it's too hard. It's too stressful. It's, I might, I might uh, have a meltdown. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's them building up their boxes and their storage unit and that's okay. That's how they want to navigate it. That's all right. Um, and at some point in life, maybe they'll be willing to unravel those boxes. Maybe not. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Shara, is your what I'm hearing in, in what you just shared is a lot around drive, around just keeping move, moving forward and drive. And, you know, a lot of the professionals that I work with, um, their drive is part of their success, but it it's also part of their downfall. Yeah. And, and um I know that you, I mean, since I met you, I experienced you as driven and I don't know if it's your, your yoga practice and the fact that you're an instructor or master instructor, but you seem to um, know how to keep your drive in check. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or anyone's ever sure that, but (laughs) so I'm just curious when I, when I say that, like what comes up for you, this idea of how, because you know what you work with leaders too. You coach professional people that are very driven. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say about like, do you keep your drive in check? Or how, how do you create? I don't know, we talk about balance, but it, I guess just like a, a healthy model, a sustainable model. Great question. A lot of us get driven in certain avenues and we develop tunnel vision around the things around us. You know, you take that in a business context, there's lots of high level executive people or individual contributors, really anybody who has a lot of drive to succeed 
they will get these kind of blinders on to what's happening in their family life, their personal life, their marriage with their kids, um, their own health. And it's because this goal orientation is so prominent in their life of like, what is this drive to succeed? And, and it's all about reinforcements. I think, you know, from like a behaviorist standpoint, we, when we feel a positive reinforcement, it's a little dopamine hit. Just reason mm-hmm. why, you know, technology is so addictive. We get these little dopamine hits and we drive through them because we're, we're chasing that versus like a serotonin, which is like this intrinsic kind of motivating hormone that helps us to navigate, um, perseverance and desire to feel contentment. Um, I noticed in my youth and what really got me to the place right before I met you was that I was a little bit addicted to the reinforcement I was facing from, you know, my professors, my colleagues, when I was that shiny star who was there 12 to 15 hours a day, hustling my butt off to get out of where I was, you know, that me trying to tell, talk about earlier, a little bit of overcoming where I had been, I was really motivated to get out of that and almost work almost became my addiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it served me well, our culture is teed up to really reinforce people who are successful. And I ate it up. I was all about it. Um, <laughs> And to a degree, you know, I, I, to be honest, I, maybe I still kind of am, um, because I've got a lot of balls in the air at all times. Really, I do. But I think my, when my brother chose to end his life, I got smacked in the face, the hardest I think I've ever been smacked. Um, you know, we all go through different things. And my brother was three years older than me at the time. I'm now older than he was when he made that decision. And, um, he was like me. He was this career hungry, um, magna cum laude graduate, you know, on the outside, everyone looked at him and thought, you've got your life together and you're perfect. And, you know, he was detail oriented and driven and passionate. And he grappled with some majorly dark pieces of who he was as a person, right? And didn't want anyone to know about it for the most part. And when he died, I just kept questioning, what's the point of all of it? You know, I almost went like 150 miles an hour to 10. I really couldn't even find motivation to keep going to work. I felt like none of it really mattered. You know, all of it's a social construct. I was like, why does, why does it matter what our retention rates are? Why does it matter if we're, you know, aiming for these billables? Why does it matter? Right. And because um, life is short. And I think that I had to have that huge smack in the face to knock me down, really, for me yeah. to be able to find what really matters in life and try to recalibrate to that. Um, when you experience grief and loss at that caliber, like, you know, some people, again, they just power through, they put it in a box and they seven in the back of the storage unit. And some people are like, I can't even see this box really to understand <laughs> how to process it. And so um, I constantly toggle between highly motivated, driven, passionate, multi-passionate person who wants to have a lot of things done with what's the purpose of this whole experience? What am I aiming to achieve and how does it help me feel like I'm living a meaningful life? 
And now I'm, I move, I wouldn't say a ton slower. I would say um, significantly slower than I used to. And I'm also not, you know, addicted to my computer screen constantly on it anymore because I feel like the most important thing in my life now is how do I cultivate these meaningful relationships in all the areas that I'm in. Right. You know, one of the words uh, you've used a few times on uh, today is toggle. Mm -hmm. um, and hadn't thought about it prior to this, but it's a, I like toggle for, uh, you know, a reason that you and I both know, but is this idea of like, we can't be on all the time. Yeah. So be on and be off and be mm -hmm. on and be off and how, and I guess the, the, uh, the experience and the art of it is, is to know when to toggle. And sometimes it's hard. Uh, one of the things that popped into my head and, and I know, I mean, your, your experience with therapy and counseling and psychology is far beyond mine. I'm, I've just in the last couple of years started to dip my toe into this world. And it's like, Oh, wow, this would have been handy 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I've experienced a lot of colleagues, friends, clients that have, so they're driven and then there's a wake up call, right? So you describe, mm -hmm. you know, when your brother took his life as being a slap in the face and a huge wake up call. Mm -hmm. And and some people, the wake up call really changes. They do a, a 180 and, and others, it's like a temporary adjustment and then they kind of fall back and but, but beyond that what i'm starting to see and i'm, I'm sure you're going to sit there and go well duh chris but this stuff where people get so uber driven on one thing this need for recognition or accolades it comes back to our childhood and we all have a childhood and none of us had a perfect childhood and mm -hmm. some of us had really obvious types of trauma and others like more subtle types of trauma, mm -hmm. but that shit still impacts us. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've seen this more and more and, and Cheryl, like the work I'm doing, the clients that I have, haven't changed that much, but since I have an awareness now of childhood trauma and, mm -hmm. and, and more, more importantly, childhood trauma that we haven't become aware of or started to deal with, mm -hmm it shapes how we show up at 30, 40, 50, 60. And what do we do? How do we, how do we help people get there um, in an area that, you know, typically we don't talk about in a professional arena? Yeah. I mean, if you can figure out the answer to that question, I think you're set for life. Yeah, I don't we can, know. We can I'm, both retire. Yeah. Yeah. We could retire. Um, I see it too. And you know, I think there's a lot there. You've got, I think your when you interviewed your therapist, right? Um, she talked Chantel. about um Chantel, a little bit about um big T, little T trauma. You know, what is a big T trauma is like my brother dying. That was huge. That was yeah. cascades, ripples out far and wide. Yeah. Um little T trauma is you know, emotional neglect in childhood, you know, when your parents aren't, you know, giving, meeting your needs as a, as a child, and you're not able to decipher what that even means. So you start to dilute your needs and you chase the hunger game of wanting to have your needs met in other ways, which is where we see a lot of addiction stem from. Um, so I, I think that when it comes to working with clients and it comes to coaching and, and we, 
are all navigating this human experience and how to how to differentiate when and where it's appropriate to talk about these things. A lot of us don't even have awareness around what our traumas are. And and I think trauma is almost overused also. Like I I don't want to say that um I don't want to minimize someone's experience and what their trauma is. And the, the truth is you and I, Chris, we can get in the exact same car accident and I can walk away feeling utterly paralyzed, unable to get into a car ever again. And you can walk away feeling absolutely fine. Like it was just a little bump, little fender bender. I'm fine. Yeah. And, you know, how we stow trauma in our brain is individualistic, but I think it's become this buzzword that you know, oh, that's someone's trauma or, oh, that's your trauma or, you know, it's become a, uh, a catch-all, if you will, for people going through any hardship. Not all hardship is trauma. Not all hardship is traumatic. So that's a, you know, an interesting nuance to try to, to differentiate with people. But it does, our, our traumas in our childhood often go repressed often are not discussed in adulthood because you think, oh, well, I've lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years since that thing happened to me. Like, whatever, you know, it's, it's, yeah. old. it's we this. all have, we all have a past. Yeah. 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 It's the farthest back in my storage unit of things to process that it doesn't even matter that that, that box is way back there. Right. right? And the truth is we're going to keep repeating patterns until we address that box. Um, so it's, it, I think it only becomes a problem when things in your life feel like they're a problem. You know, some people might say like, oh, this trauma happened to me when I was three, but you know, it doesn't, I'm not really showing up in a way that makes me feel like I'm having an issue with it. Whereas other people, you know, this, this thing happened to me when I was three and I'm seeing that I'm now like hungry for attention. I'm driving people away because I don't trust them to take care of my needs, you know, whatever it might be. And then maybe it's not just that one incident when you were three, maybe it's like accumulation of incidents over time, but that was the first one. Um, and so how do you navigate that with, you know, this purview that staying in your scope is important as any kind of coach or clinician, but also we're all having this human experience. We're all human beings, not just human doings. So if we're being in community together, it's appropriate to talk about these things when and where you can, that feels like it's prudent for your growth. Work settings aren't always the best settings to talk about it, but people are going to unload their, their family histories on each other. Because if you think about it, when you grow up as a kiddo, you have siblings, you have parents, and that how that picture is painted is different for each one of us. But as you get to adulthood, you enter careers, you have a boss who's at most equated in your mind to who? Yeah, your parent, your father. Your parent, yeah. your parents. You have coworkers in your mind who are most equated to, in a subconscious level, your siblings. Yeah. So, if, and then you add your, your partnerships in adulthood and all the other pieces there. But it's easy to take, you know, something that, you know, Chris, you're my supervisor, you say, hey, Sharon, I need you to get this thing done by the end of the day. And I'm already working on a project and I'm thinking you're kind of hijacking my day. 
that it's easy for me to have an emotional reaction to that because in, in my mind, you know, you're like my dad coming in, like hijacking me, trying to get something else done with my day. And so then there's this like push pull of energetic shift between what it's like to be a supervisor and what it's like to be an individual contributor or to be a member of a team. And it's a, without processing how you are used to functional dynamics within a system, a family system, it's going to be hard to navigate at work what your interpretations of what other people are going to be saying to you and how they're going to be showing up because you're going to project your own lived experience on these relationships. Yeah. That's where I, I work with a lot of my clients on deciphering. You may not think that, you know, your boss, Dan, is your dad. But when Dan shows up and he's in a grumpy mood and you're over there, like picking up all of his pens, trying to make him feel better, <laughs> who, does that, who does that relational um, emotion equate to the most? Did yeah. you do that with your dad growing up? The answer is usually probably some important informative figure is mostly equated to who your, your boss is at work. Well, I, I hope you've been enjoying this this conversation that uh, Sharon and I have been having. And um, in fact, if you did, I got good news is <laughs> you're, you're going to get to hear uh, part two because I realized um, at some point that this there's there's more here than than uh, one content or one podcast worth of content. So um, stay tuned. Uh, this is part one, and uh, coming soon you'll get to hear part two of this great conversation with Shara Justice. The Real Leadership Podcast is produced by Chris Obst Leadership and Alive Creative Services. Thank you for listening.